When I think of a gap year, a certain type of trip comes to mind, like camper vanning around Australia or losing your inhibitions at wild full moon parties in Southeast Asia. All of those definitive adventures that fill our Facebook timelines and our Instagram feeds. And later in this episode, we'll hear from one of our very own Rough Guides editors, Freya Godfrey, who tells us about her experiences in India. There, she recorded some seriously beautiful sounds on the road, and she discovered an abandoned village where, so the legend goes, the residents one day just upped sticks and left. I had a bath, and then I had two poached eggs, and then I made soup. But first up, we hear from poet-comedian Tim Key, who took a completely different type of gap year. Yet here he was, sat in front of me, wearing a Langkawi cap and a hoodie, bearing all of these Chinese symbols. I'm pretty sure he was dressed up in his most travelly outfit for the interview. I like your cap, by the way. Oh, thank you. Did you get that from Langkawi? Got that from my travels. Nice. It's a bad podcast if we're relying on the cap. Yeah. (laughs) Save this for (laughs) the juices. Save my cap stuff. (laughs) Full transparency, I had an ulterior motive getting Tim Key into the studio. He's one of my favourite comedians, and I've seen pretty much every show he's toured since 2009. He once even made my girlfriend get onto the stage and climb into his bed. So when I found out that he's starring in this brand new E4 TV show called Gap Year, it felt like the perfect opportunity to invite him into the Rough Guide studio to have a chat about his travels. And it turns out he has travelled quite a lot. And some of his travels have inspired his brilliant and beautiful poetry. So we asked him to perform one of these pieces to us, which he did, and we will play it at the end of the episode. I found Tim to be quite refreshingly honest in his approach to travel. Like sometimes you can be somewhere really, truly incredible and still your overriding emotion is homesickness or you might just be feeling a bit bored. So first up, here is Tim telling us about how he spent his year before university. Yeah, I did. What, what? Well, I mean, I had a gap year. There was a gap. Okay. And do you want to know how I filled it? I would like. I, I wouldn't <laughs> mind knowing how you filled it. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you. So um, I got a job, is as a librarian. And then, that's less useful for rough guides. It's not really on message, is it? No, we like okay, so I was in a librarian, and then I went to Kiev in Ukraine. So we can talk about that if you want. That's more rough guides, isn't That's it? That's pretty rough guides. It's yeah. a bit more on message. Let's go straight let's go straight to Kiev. Really? So Nothing what? about the library is quite interesting. Okay, let's go library first. Why why did you decide to be a librarian? To get money to go to Kiev. Okay. And then why did you decide to go to Kiev? Um because I hadn't really sorted anything out gap year wise. And so all of the interesting stuff where people were in things like Nepal or Colombia had all sort of gone. So I then was sort of mm, feeding off scraps, really. And I found a very dodgy company called... Oh, I don't know whether I should name them then. But anyway, they'd been investigated by Watchdog, so I guess they are dodgy. They took people to Kiev, Bangalore, and Ghana. <laughs> that was their thing. Okay. Yeah, they just sort of found this little niche in the market where they could just really focus on Kiev, Bangalore and Ghana. The company was a teaching English vibe. 
So I decided I'd teach English in Bangalore and then changed to Kiev because I thought I'd come back to my parents' 25th wedding anniversary. Good son. <laughs> so I thought I'd be a bit more local, as in Kiev. And then I went on a 61-hour journey to Kiev on a coach and a train and then was a little 18-year-old boy in Kiev. I got a flat on my own in the Ivano-Frankovsk region of Kiev and just sort of lived a very simple Ukrainian life for a summer. What's a simple Ukrainian life? Um, well, what did that consist of? I mean, teaching, had my little classes, regretting being there because Euro 96 was happening in England. I watched... England against Scotland in a hotel, which I wasn't staying at, where I just walked in with as much confidence as I could muster mm. and found a TV and sat there as if I was allowed and watched that. I think I might have not watched the end. I think I did get thrown out before the end of that. You saw Gaza. You saw... I saw Gaza, yeah. Yeah. Um, I missed England against Holland. Oh, <laughs> I mean, man. What was I doing? Um, but then on the plus side... Uh, Kiev is excellent I mean I'm sure it's changed a bit in the last 20 years mm. but it was very I loved it and I love the people I mean I would rec I've recommended it to everyone but then you sort of have to temper how much you're re recommending it because you can't really recommend somewhere that's really totally on the news so can you paint me a picture of what I haven't been to Kiev before very green, very green okay. it's got a um, I think it was called Gidro Park which is a hydro park which was an enormous green, I don't know whether it was an island, it felt like an island, but it might just have been the sort of the shape of the city. It was certainly the other side of the river. Um, there's a big river called the Dnipro. Having been to Riga, I don't want to, no one ever likes to slag off Riga, no. but it feels like Kiev is a sort of advanced version of Riga. It's got a lot of charm and it's quite idiosyncratic, but it's less frighteningly monstrous than things like Moscow. Mm. I guess it's a bit like St. Petersburg, maybe. There's probably a van okay. somewhere. But, um, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, you mentioned Moscow and St. Petersburg. So you studied Russian at uni, is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so you've got... And in your Hang shows... Have you been on my Wikipedia? I've been on your Wikipedia. <laughs> and actually, I've been to some of your shows before, and I've what? seen you... You've been to some of my shows for this interview? <laughs> Specifically. How long have you been planning it's this? It's been years of research. <laughs> this is like the culmination yeah. of years. Uh, but yeah, and obviously Russia comes up in your shows. It does, actually, yeah. So why why Russia? What is it? You um, why do I like Russia, or why does Russia infiltrate my shows? I guess the first leads on to the second. Yeah, they're both quite interesting, I think. Well, as far as anything's interesting. Yeah. Well, no, the first bit isn't. I think I literally thought, I'll change my degree because my degree that I was flying back for was English language and linguistics at Newcastle University. And then I thought I'd be better off studying Russian, even though it'd be much harder, but I'll end up being able to speak Russian. And I think I also had this romantic notion that I could leave Kiev and then return to Kiev four years later, speaking fluent Russian mm. and maybe pull um, Helena. I mean, did you pull Helena? I never went back to um, <sighs> Kiev. Helena, if you're listening out there. I mean, I, I think we're even beyond Helena, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that would be a, this would be real Phoenix from the Flame stuff. If um, if me and Helena ever got together now, I'd be so surprised. Yeah, because it was all before Facebook. Oh, so all I have is a um, a scrap of paper somewhere that says Helena and her number, but it's not her mobile number, and actually it's her sister's number. So I've got her sister's number, which would actually be Elena's parents, their home number. And they may have moved, but if not, then they have every right not to expect a um, an Englishman to phone up if they're in their 70s and say, I'm looking for your presumably married daughter mm. in Kiev. Yeah. Yep. In Tim's new TV series, Gap Year, he plays a character who tacks along to this group of cooler and younger backpackers and they just can't shake him off. The idea is uh, there's two American girls who are in China for various reasons and two English guys are in China as well for also various reasons. All four of those are young, as in like I think 20 or 21. Yeah. They run into a, I guess, goon who is... Uh, much older than them, and he clamps onto them like a limpet, and I play him. He's called Greg. He is called Greg, yep. incidentally. Yes, like, like you are. Like I, that's yeah. also my name. Yeah. Would you say he's a... Limpet? Classic Greg? Yeah, you know what, actually? In popular culture, Gregs are often losers. I have noticed this over the years. Because, oh, are they? Yeah, because naturally you pick up when it's your own name. I don't know if you find this with Tim, but... They're tennis players, mainly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We were there for four and a half months. But I remember thinking, I wouldn't mind going home home in about about six weeks in. But I think there was something, a kind of sweet spot about six weeks in where six weeks is quite a long time, I think, to be away. And then when you throw into the mix that you've still got three months left, it sort of gets quite, um, not over, yeah, overwhelming a little unmanageable in your mind. Yeah. And then if you throw into the mix that that period, specifically, we were in a jungle. And so we were there in this jungle for about maybe a week. My character, he'd been bitten, so he was sort of gone deaf. So he was on a stretcher. And so there was a whole day where I was just lying on a stretcher, facing up through the canopy. And at that sort of point, you can really start to reflect upon your life and start thinking well here we here we all are but i mean wouldn't mind a pret i don't think that it's that likely there'd be too much sympathy from other people when you're sort of going yeah it was quite quite difficult filming in southeast asia mm. for four and a half months it's an interesting i suppose in terms of this podcast the to what extent it was a um working holiday and to what extent it was working mm. but just quite hot what kind of a traveler are you are you the kind of traveler who does do you feel like you need to tick off the main sites or would you be happy spending a day or two wandering around and not going to anywhere that's in the top 10 things to see in a city um i think a mixture so if we were there for a long enough time we'd try and do both so beijing i think we we're in beijing for about a week there's a mixture because like you're something like the hutongs in Beijing, which are like the little back streets and stuff, that would be 
probably in the guidebooks as one of the 10 things to do mm. in the same way as Tiananmen Square would be one of the 10 things. It's it's interesting to see Tiananmen Square, but they have two very different tourist attractions. You know, Tiananmen Square is like a, a place to go and absorb the um, history. <laughs> yeah. And um, the hutongs are what you're describing. That is just kicking around in the streets. Yeah which is just, you know, poking around a city, which you might then latterly realise is in the guidebook as being a recommended thing to do <laughs> because really it's a nice bit of the city. Yeah, when you think you've made a find yeah. and then you realise that everyone's gone to the monkey temple. Yeah, that's my job is I'm there to ruin it for people yeah. so, so they can go back and read and say, oh, it's already in the guidebook. Have you been to this part of the world that we're mm. talking about? You know what, not really. I've been to Malaysia... I went. I actually went to Bali on a stag do. Wow! That was my experience of Bali. Amazing. Yeah, it wasn't really amazing. No. Uh, but the wedding was in Perth. Okay. So it wasn't like I flew from no. Luton to Bali. No. Um, but I can't really. When people ask me if I've been to Indonesia, I have to sort of say no. Southeast Asia is off my radar, so it's interesting. No, it's pretty good. Vietnam was a bit of a game changer, and also where it fell, it came straight after the. Um, moments of severe introspection in the jungle mm. so we suddenly burst out of the jungle and found ourselves in Ho Chi Minh City which was an extraordinary place really a good box ticking mental Southeast Asian city which is sort of too loud and impossible to cross any roads and really colourful and really sort of intoxicating and in a way that Kuala Lumpur wasn't really. Kuala Lumpur's, you know, comparatively pedestrian and westernised, I suppose, but but mainly doesn't have that kind of spirit of complete wildness, which I don't know whether that's what you want if you're living there, mm. but when you're just passing through somewhere for three days, you want it to, you want to see things which are notable and which you just sort of go, well... That's insane. I mean, you just basically want to see people on mopeds with r really long bits of piping. <laughs> sort of length length of plank on moped is a really good barometer for. <laughs> yeah, because in in Malaysia, they don't carry that many weird things on mopeds. Yeah, no, you're right. They don't. Do no, they? but in Vietnam, you know, you'd easily see you know a moped with someone carrying a grandfather clock going past <laughs> a moped with someone carrying. 20 budgies in a cage yeah no that's yeah you're absolutely right there's one point in i think it's the first episode that really resonated where you're on the great wall of china yeah i think someone mentions wanting to see the sunrise from the mm. great wall of china and then all of this disastrous stuff happens that evening at the festival and as it turns out you do end up on the great wall of china mm. for the sunrise yeah and then you're sort of standing there as a group watching it and then it's sort of like five seconds ten seconds pass and then there's that sense of We've right. done that. Yeah, we've done that now. Yeah. Let's let's go. Yeah. And that I think that that's so true. I yeah. think that does happen quite a lot. I think so. Maybe I don't know whether there's an age thing as well where it, you know, when you're sort of wide eyed and uncynical. I don't know where what the best age to be when you're watching a sunrise from the Great Wall, whether you have too much expectation when you're young and it doesn't quite work for you, mm. or whether you know, if you're a bit older, you kind of go thinking, well, I mean, how good can a sunrise be? You know, maybe you have like a dash of cynicism. So when you do see it, you sort of go, well, that's actually not bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been speaking about Southeast Asia 
where you're traveling while you're doing your gap year show. Um, but in one of your comedy shows that I went to a few years ago, the focus was on India. Oh, sure. So can you tell me a bit about India? and Why did you choose that as part of your comedy show? Oh, yeah. So um, me and a friend just, there's no real story here. We just decided to go to India, me and Johnny. And so we booked a trip to um, Rajasthan and Delhi and Kerala. He and I just had a um, a gap and just threw caution to the wind and went to India. And uh, I don't know why. I, oh, actually, I do. We went, we went for a drink and we decided we were going to go away. And then we both wrote two countries on our palms of our hands each and then held them up. And if any two, if we'd chosen the same country, we'd go there. Yeah. So... <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing you do with a girlfriend, but actually I did this with Johnny. Okay. India is, is great. I loved it. Have you been there? No. You Have you ever travelled? No. All I've done is barley <laughs> stag do. <laughs> that, that was what got me this job, yeah. was the barley stag do. Yeah, yeah. And I've just been in the studio since then. What, what are the best things to do on a barley stag do? Oh, God. Can you, where, can you fire a even, Kalashnikov? Where do we even start? No, no, I couldn't afford that. Um... You can get shot at by tasers by kids on the street. Great. That happened. That was nice. Okay. They do a great fish and chips. Of course. At Billy's Irish mm-hmm. Bar. Mm-hmm. Drinks are cheap. Yeah, because they weren't that cheap in Southeast Asia. Just... Oh, really? No. Just go to Bali. It's not all about that, though, is it? But I think people have cottoned on to the fact that Westerners will pay loads for beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you find that in India? India was cheaper, but... Yeah, yeah Malaysia was just like... It feels like an affront, you know, when you're sort of just a um, fairly untravelled Westerner who arrives in Kuala Lumpur and you go and order your first beer and they say, well, that's five pounds. And you just sort of go, oh, it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. It shouldn't be the same as England. Yeah. But you're maybe, Malaysia. Maybe, but maybe it should. Maybe that's exactly what it should be. It should, it should be, be, yeah. Yeah. It definitely it feels should. feels like it should And be. in all those bars, you know, on that strip in Malaysia, you know, it's all full of kind of Westerners sort of drinking beer yeah and you know why shouldn't it be the same price as their country it feels like we're building up a bank of advice on how to discern exotic authenticity overseas ruby wax told me it was the dream catcher test so if there's a dream catcher run a mile and for tim key it's the size of the plank of wood that's being carried on a moped so thank you for that nugget of wisdom tim Now, hands up, I feel like after that interview, I've got to confess that there are still a few holes in my travel repertoire. I'm working on it, I'm only 27, and the world's a big place. But luckily enough, since I had nothing to offer Tim, our very own travel editor, Freya Godfrey, is just back from India. So I asked her down to the studio to describe her first impressions of the country. It's completely terrifying because you're winding between gaps in the road that you don't think would be possible. You're on a three-lane road, but there's five lanes of traffic going on. Um, And they just hurtle through at top speed, um, trying to weave in, in and out as fast as possible to the next destination. But kind of after that first 30 seconds or something, 
you don't really worry about it anymore. Okay, so you're like weirdly used to the idea of your like death being just around the corner. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) because you can't think about it because then you'd just be a nervous wreck the whole time. (laughs) So you're kind of numb with fear. Yeah, just accept it and treat it a bit like a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And then it's fine. Were there any near scrapes? There was one time, this is actually not in a tuk-tuk, but we got a taxi in between a couple of places. Um, And I'd fallen asleep and I woke up because I think I could hear kind of horns screeching or something. So we were in the hard shoulder for some reason, Mm. hurtling down. In the opposite direction, coming the wrong way, was a huge truck. Jesus. And neither our taxi nor the truck decided to slow down. (laughs) They were just going full pelt at each other until the point that our taxi driver managed to just squeeze in back onto the main road and the sounds i mean there's constant horn beeping um everyone is just pressing their horn for sometimes it seemed that there was no reason for the horn to be being pressed it was just kind of let you know that i'm here we were in a toll road queue at one point um so there was nowhere to go there was no space either side no one was moving forward and our driver just had his hand pressed down on the horn In Jai Salme, um, we went out onto on a camel trek into the Thar Desert, um, which is kind of just on the border with Pakistan, far west um, of India. And we were on the on the way to go and meet our camel guy, and we stopped outside this abandoned village. It's really well preserved, kind of sandstone buildings, and obviously fairly wealthy. I mean, these were kind of two-storey buildings. You can still walk up the stairs, you can walk into the rooms and there's kind of carvings around some of the windows and things like that. The story goes that the Raj at the time came round past the village and he spotted a girl and he thought, this is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. I must marry her. And it turns out it's the chief's daughter. And he says, no, you can't marry her. Despite all your riches and wealth, you can't have my daughter. And the reason is that the Raj is a meat eater and the village a vegetarian. He says to the king, the Raj even, come back in three days. We'll do all the marriage preparations and things like that. And after three days, she'll be ready to marry you. So the Raj goes off and then he comes back in three days looking for his bride and the village is completely deserted. There's no one there. Wow. Not a single person. (laughs) So what's happened is that the entire village, everyone, every man, woman and child, with all their stuff, have decided rather than having this girl married off to the Raj, we'll move to Pakistan. We'll all get out of the village and we'll leave. We're off, off to Pakistan. Yeah. <laughs> so just like on the level of believability between <laughs> naught and ten, where are we? Where are we placing this? Because uh... I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a bit dubious. <laughs> where, where, where do you put it? I wasn't sure. The guy who was taking us around had told us quite a lot of stories along mm. the way, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure about this one. <laughs> but um, 
just outside the village when we were leaving it, there was this old guy sitting down with a kind of long white beard, a bright orange turban and kind of white dhoti sitting cross-legged. Anyway, he got these two flutes out that he said he'd made and he started kind of limbering up his fingers and he put the flutes to his mouth and just played this fantastic tune on two flutes that just sounded magical and we were sat there for about five minutes listening to his flute music. Thank you to Freya for your beautiful recordings and for coming in to chat about your time in India. And thank you also to Tim Key for coming in to speak. It was a delight to meet you. And now, as promised, here he is performing a poem for us. Amal wrote a letter to his sweetheart on a seed. He injected the seed into an apple. He gave her the apple and went to war. A tree grew, and on each leaf there appeared a word from his letter. One day Grace stood at the right angle, and the words formed into the letter again. She lowered her shades and read Amal's letter through tears. She penned a reply on a plumstone and buried it in a watermelon. Give this fruit to Amal, she said to Sydney. He placed it in his parachute bag, and he solemnly boarded his flight to the Sudan. That's it for this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can even give us a rating or a review. It takes like two minutes and it means that other people might be able to find us on their podcast app. Thank you to my producer, Alana Chance, my boss, George D, Keith Drew, and my exec producers, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade.